Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Have you all noticed a theme to this year's Thanksgiving meal? For many, it's all about the sides. And we're totally here for it. This hour, we'll talk to chefs about their go-to Thanksgiving side dishes. And we'll talk to the farmer and owner of the state's one and only cranberry bog. But first, Chef Plum and I wax poetic about our own favorite sides. Plum shares the simplest homemade cranberry sauce ever. And then you'll hear our conversation with Chris Morocco, the test kitchen director at Bon Appetit magazine. So Marisol, I got to tell you, I love turkey. I love turkey very much. I don't want to hate on turkey. I don't want to get rid of the turkey. I think it's a super important part of it. But side dishes, one of my favorite things ever. Okay, the turkey could get lost on its way to the dinner table and I wouldn't miss it. <laughs> so for me, sides are everything. Do you have a favorite side? Like, do you have a favorite side when you were a kid? And is it the same side as now? Just mashed potatoes, really. But I, I love making dressing. Uh, that's usually my task when I go to my sister's house. But this year, I'm going to try something different and new. I love that you said dressing, by the way. Oh, yeah. I'm elevated. <laughs> Listen, I am no chef. I did not study at the prestigious CIA. But I know my nomenclature. Yes, you do. I know if I'm around you, I have to elevate my foodie talk. Thankfully, I can make you think that. I can't even spell nomenclature. <laughs> uh, you know, for me, side dishes, I love making stuffings. I'm a big stuffing fan. But one of my favorites was always cranberry sauce. And as a kid, listen, my, I didn't have a culinary family. You know, my people didn't do a lot of cooking. Cranberry sauce for me was that jiggly can, open it up. The, they didn't yeah. even put it sideways or try to cut it at first. It was just It was poured, just there. Oh, yeah. Tunk, and it just shook. But I loved it. That stuff was so delicious. And then when I started getting into food, I remember my mom would then cut it in half and put it on two plates now. Like, that was her gimmick. Like, oh, look. That that was the elevated elevated cranberry <laughs> yeah, sauce. right? But I wanted to know what the best way to make cranberry sauce is. I'm like, this can't be that hard. How do you get this jellied, berry, jam-tasting, but a little bit tart and sour deliciousness out of these berries. And so I figured it out. It's really, really simple. I love making cranberry sauce. I do different versions of it every year. But listen, the easiest way, 12 ounces of cranberries, a cup of sugar, and a little bit of orange juice, right? You want to make easy cranberry sauce, bring your orange juice and your sugar to a boil, add your cranberries to it. The second they start to pop and burst, yeah. pour it out, let it hang out, and it will gel up and congeal beautifully. It's awesome. It tastes great. It's delicious. It's super simple. But for me, I like to add a little splash of Grand Marnier to it Ooh. as I'm boiling it. A little bit of Grand Marnier, and then I zest some orange into it. And if I'm feeling really spicy, yeah. I'll toast up some walnuts with a little bit of chili powder and cayenne pepper and top the cranberry sauce with that. That is fantastic. It's a little bit more elevated than turning the can sideways and slicing it on the plate. Just a little bit, right? <laughs> Just a little bit. That's all. Do you make any sides for your Thanksgiving? This Thanksgiving, I am doing a roasted eggplant over a bed of greens because the thing about Thanksgiving, it's heavy. Yeah. And even the sides can be heavy. And I like the idea of having that like shiny, citrusy cranberry that you're offering. But sometimes I look at the long table and I'm like, I need something that is cold something okay. cold and crunchy kind of like to get me through round two. Yeah. So I'm just going to uh, roast some eggplants. I'm going to sweat them the way you've taught me. I'm going to salt them. Mm -hmm. I'm going to sweat them. And then I'm going to roast them at 400. A little bit of olive oil, salt and pepper. And then I'm going to do a bed of greens. That might be arugula, might be dandelion. Not sure yet. And then fresh herbs because that makes everything nice. Uh, so it's like a little salad. It's like, like a little a salad. salad. And then I'm going to do some pomegranate seeds over top. Okay, very festive. I'm going to take the eggplant out, and I'm going to do the eggplant in half moons, I've decided. You know, because the look is half the battle, right? I think that's fantastic. Listen. Even if it tastes horrible, at least it looks good. Well, you got to make it taste good, then you can make it look good. That's how we look at it. This is going to be both. And then I think I'm going to zhuzh it up with an olive oil lemon, fresh oregano, 
affair dressing okay, so on top. A light dressing with it. That sounds delicious, actually. And that's it. And I'm going to put it out there and they can have it. And if they don't, more for me. I think eggplant should be part of every Thanksgiving. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so what else should be part of every Thanksgiving? Potatoes are high on the list. Our first guest is Chris Morocco. He's the test kitchen director at Bon Appetit. Chris offered up his tips for mashed potatoes, and we got into some of the side dishes featured in the Thanksgiving issue of the magazine. I feel like it's the least controversial statement of all time to say that, like, sides are why we're all here, you know? (laughs) I mean, I, I, yeah, my go-to sides, so my wife is English, and she wants English roast potatoes, and she really turned me on to the beauty of gravy, not on mashed potato, but gravy on top of a crispy, shattering crisp kind of exterior, you know, kind of potato with a fluffy interior, That's what she's all about. And I've sort of become indoctrinated into her worldview and and fully support that. And not just because she's your wife and she will... Definitely not. She will rain hell down upon you. Definitely not. I feel like everybody in the family could frankly like have their own like preferred style of potato and it could just be all potato sides and pretty much everybody would be okay with that. There's a lot of truth there. (laughs) Yeah. 100%, especially in my house as well. Well, talking just potatoes... We love the mashed potatoes that are in the magazine that are kind of a classic with a twist. But can you give our listeners some tips on making classic mashed potatoes and how to elevate them into a, you know, a holiday worthy potato? So I think there's like, I can give you lots of tips. Okay. But then I also will have to admit that like not a whole lot of them went into the making of this year's, you know, garlic and miso butter mashed potatoes. Here's the thing, you know, when it comes to mashed potatoes, there's like, you can aim for perfection. Right. And in in my mind, that is okay. You're simmering, never boiling, simmering potatoes that have their skins on in very generously salted water. You are peeling them after they are cooked. Okay. You are then putting them through a ricer or a food mill and you're mixing in fat, like your butter before you put in any liquid to minimize, you know, kind of activating starches and making your mashed potatoes go gluey and really just stirring them enough to have them come together. But this year, Brad Leone did his roasted garlic miso butter mashed potatoes. And I kind of said to him, listen, why pretend that we ourselves have ricers in our kitchens? Because we don't. Thank you. Thank you on behalf of all the mere mortals. Why are we pretending? Here we are like 10 years into this like sort of, you know, sort of chicanery, kind of assuming that people like have a ricer or want to use it you know, on Thanksgiving with all the other chaos going on. It's like, Brad, just make delicious mashed potatoes and use a masher. Yeah, I think I agree with that completely. You don't beat the heck out of the potato to begin with, and they come out nice. You have a couple little chunks here and there. I I love doing that. And I think to tell people, too, when they're doing their potatoes, after you peel them, let them rest in that pan. Let those starches start to kind of separate those layers and fluff up those potatoes. You'll see them start to kind of flake apart. That's when it's time to mash them up. Let them dry out a little bit. Get like Let them steam out some of their excess moisture. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. I've been doing it wrong the whole time. Wow. (laughs) Well, but it's also, I've got hungry children staring at me like, lady, 
we're starving. Start mashing those potatoes. And sometimes the best way isn't the right way for you. You know, sure, there's like the kind of platonic ideal mashed potato that's like 50% butter by weight or whatever, but that's not what we're going to make on a Tuesday night. I love that. Chef Plum, you may, maybe you disagree. I'm doing it right now. You have no idea. Like, there's a pan behind me. I'm just melting butter. I have two potatoes in there. It's great. Sorry. Go ahead, Marcel. But also, I mean, we're talking about Thanksgiving sides and tools rice, whatever that doohickey is called. Ricer. The ricer. No way, dude. <laughs> but the potato masher, it prohibits me from getting to the thing I want to get to in the back of my drawer. What's that? I open a drawer. I want to get to my wine opener. Oh. But the dang <laughs> potato masher is like, no, oh sorry, girl, not tonight. Tonight's not oh. your night. Can oh one of you gosh. people in that test kitchen invent a better... I don't have room on my counter in my little makeshift vase of wooden spoons and all that other stuff. So, and you know, it's it's a bit of a tragedy, right? Like a tool that only really has one use, That's you it. know, although you could make the same argument about a wine opener, but I think it's safe to say that one earns its keep 100%. in the drawer. <laughs> Absolutely. 100%. Hey, while we're still talking potatoes, there's another potato side in the feature from your senior food editor. Can you tell our listeners what a Rosti is and why we might want to add this little, I'm air quoting, slice of civility to our holiday meal? I love this idea. It looks so good. It looks so good. Yes. So my colleague, Christina Chade, developed this. And a Rosti is originally comes from Switzerland. It's a kind of crispy kind of large format, almost like potato hash, think of it as, you know, but set in a cake with like a very golden burnished exterior. And it's a way to not have everything on your plate literally be just like a blob, right? Like a blob of mashed potatoes, a blob of cranberry sauce, pools of gravy kind of running every which way. Potato roasty, that crisp edge, that definition, the fact that you can do it on the stovetop, you know, this doesn't have to take up precious oven space, but with that kind of cacio e pepe, you know, kind of flavor profile attached to it, Parmesan, you know, could be pecorino as well, but black pepper, just a little bit of a kick. It's so nice. And you can kind of put other things in there too, if you wanted to, it didn't have to always mm -hmm. be, you know, just a potato or, you know, you could throw some green onions in there as well. Throw some oh. chopped up bacon, you know, whatever you want to put. Oh, I love all these things. Fully load it. In other words. Yeah. I love that. Uh, we can't talk about Thanksgiving dinner without another classic cranberries mm. fashioned into something maybe not so heavy, maybe having a little bit of crunch involved. Totally. My colleague, Jesse Chen, developed the bitter green salad with cranberry dressing. And the idea was, listen, like cranberry sauce, like why does this have to be relegated only to Thanksgiving dinner? This is like the OG American punchy, bright, sharp chutney that everybody ignores every other day of the year. And it's like, why do, why are we eating completely different things on this one day? Like, no wonder we kind of like, you know, kind of fetishize Thanksgiving dinner. It's like have chutney all the, have your cranberry dressing all the time, you know, like make stuffing on a Saturday. Do you do you, you know, but point being, we wanted a bright, crunchy, you know, salad, something to kind of cut through all those other rich foods and, this is a way to do that. And the idea just being like, listen, cranberries are really great, you know, kind of bright and sharp kind of cleansing, you know, kind of flavor to kind of bring into a holiday or any kind of meal. Yeah. And you can just use store-bought cranberry sauce and just kind of thin it out with some olive oil and lemon juice and, and it makes for a great dressing. 
that seems really simple and easy. I think that's a great idea. I do too. You literally don't even have to make it yourself. I mean, the stuff that's like the whole berry one, I'm not talking about the jelly, nothing, you know, kind of wobbling on the plate kind of stuff, but like the whole berry cranberry yeah. sauce is, is where it's at for this. Completely. I actually enjoy taking it and mixing it with mayo and making a cranberry Ooh. mayo for a turkey sandwich. It's delicious. Absolutely. Ultimate leftover play. I have a lot of thoughts about leftovers because I think this is a meal that is like as much about leftovers, maybe if not even more so than the actual kind of dinner, you know, kind of lunch itself. So I have used it literally to make fried rice. Like I've taken chunks of cornbread dressing, okay, fried out and then sort of tossed together with fried rice and then finished with chili crisp. I mean, that's as far as you can take it, okay? That's great. So I know, you know, everybody kind of knows, oh, you can make a sandwich with your leftovers. Yeah, big whoop, okay? Like, that's great. Maybe you'll get one or two of those. But you should be using your turkey carcass. There is so much flavor in that. And I'm not just talking about, oh, we'll just simmer it and you can kind of make like a chicken soup light, right? No, there's a recipe for a turkey French dip on Bon Appetit's website, and it incorporates a lot of um, flavors that you'd normally find in Vietnamese pho. So there's anise, there's cinnamon, there's a little bit of sugar, there is fish sauce, there's ginger. You put it together kind of as a French dip, you know, with, but with tons of herbs, a little bit of sliced green chili. And that broth becomes otherworldly, you know, because you haven't just worked with exactly what you've got. You've leveled up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Treat your leftovers kindly and they will love you right back. Chris Morocco, such a pleasure to have you on season. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you. Really nice to be here. That was Bon Appetit's test kitchen director, Chris Morocco. And we're not totally done with cranberries just yet. Later in the hour, we talk to cranberry farmer Keith Bishop. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, we dish about more Thanksgiving sides with chefs that we love. We're talking green bean casserole, smoked squash, and of course, stuffing. You can cook the dressing the day before if you need to and heat it back up because you're gonna put gravy on it. Oh, Marty. You're listening to Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're talking about the best part of Thanksgiving dinner. So, of course, we're talking about the sides. Chef Plum spoke to several chefs about their go-to side dishes, starting with stuffing or dressing, depending upon where you're from. Our next guest, party planner and Food Network star Marty Duncan, hails from Alabama. Now, that's how you know somebody's a Yankee when somebody will say, what kind of stuffing do you make? I'm like, we don't make stuffing. We make dressing, turkey and dressing. And it's dressing. not turkey and stuffing. <laughs> Who's ever heard of that? 
Well, what's the difference? Is there a difference in the two? Well, yeah. Like stuffing in the, I mean, stuffing literally in stuffing in the in the turkey, or yeah, that's kind of dangerous. Now I'm not <laughs> just not gonna try it. Um, it can be, you know, because it doesn't get cooked enough, and then the inside of the bird doesn't get cooked. Up. Did you know? Just as a side note, uh, because I used to be the food safe spokesperson for the USDA. Uh-huh. Did you know that Thanksgiving is the number one day for food poisoning in the whole Come year, on. and more people go to the emergency room on Thanksgiving for food poisoning because they don't cook their stuffing correctly <laughs> or their bird correctly. So we eat dressing and dressing is cooked outside the bird. Okay. Everybody in the South has got their perfect Pyrex dish for their dressing. I mean, I've got one that's giant. Like it is the size of a, I don't know. What would you a say? A kiddie pool. I guess it, if I'm guessing. It's yeah. The size of a yeah. Pool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> kind of. And so, yeah, that's what I make my dressing in. I've already started making my cornbread. So we make cornbread dressing here in the South. I have my turkey broth that I froze. I made that like a couple months ago. So we make it with good Southern cornbread that's made in a cast iron skillet. And then I put that in the freezer until I'm ready to use it. So they break out the cornbread and crumble it up and put it in a big bowl. And then, you know, you have to add in your, all your good turkey drippings and your turkey broth or chicken broth or whatever. And then the thing that I remember the most about Thanksgiving's growing up would be my mother. When I'd wake up on Christmas morning or Thanksgiving morning, I would always smell the onions and the celery cooking on the stovetop that she'd be cooking those with a little bit of, you know, water and she put butter in it and you could just smell that throughout the house, that most beautiful smell. So we cut up the onions, we cut up celery, we cook that on the stovetop and then we add it into the cornbread and then you add the liquid as you need to with the broth and everything. And then you season it. Oh my gosh, it's the best thing ever. So just to come back, because I grew up down south. Well, I grew up in Virginia. You might argue that's not down south, but every single person in my family has the same accent you do. <laughs> but I remember my grandmother's stuffing. It was very, very dry. Stuffing? Uh, you know, you it mean was just, dressing? Excuse me. Excuse me. Her dressing would be <laughs> her dressing would be very... And she called it dressing too, actually. And her dressing would be very, very dry. She overcooked it, I think. And so I think for the most part, too, when you're talking about making a dressing, you're actually going to make the dressing for the most part after the turkey comes out of the oven, right? Because you got to have those drippings. Not everybody does. I like to put some of the drippings in, but not everybody does. I will go ahead and mix it up and make it up and have it ready to go in the oven. And quite honestly, you can cook the dressing the day before if you need to and heat it back up because you're going to put gravy on it. Oh, yeah. I usually make mine... Um, to go in the oven right before the turkey comes out. Yeah. So you kind of started going over a little bit, but a proper Southern dressing should include this or a great Southern dressing, not stuffing, is this. Yeah. So cooked outside the bird includes onion and celery, which you pre-cook in a saucepan on top of the uh, uh, stove. No carrots. No carrots. No. Just, oh, you no. Should, I, I wish our listeners could see Marty's face when I said carrots there. She was disgusted. She's like, why would you even I say that? I love carrots, <laughs> but not in my dressing, okay. man. So not okay, mirepoix. So, we're not doing mirepoix. No, okay. we're just doing onions and onions, celery. celery. Okay. Cut up very small. You put that in a saucepan with a little bit of water and some salt. Put some butter in there with it. I'd say maybe half a stick of butter. What is that? Four tablespoons of butter. You put that in there and you just kind of let that cook and cook and cook until everything gets nice and soft. It makes the house smell amazing. Yeah. And then you let that sit on the side until you get ready to put your dressing together. So I use a giant bowl, uh-huh. like a giant. You put your cornbread. Now, the essential thing is you cannot use a box cornbread. Okay. You cannot use that cornbread that has sugar in it. 
Absolutely not. Like the Jiffy kind. I, I mean, I guess some people love that and good for them. But no sugar in the cornbread. No sugar in the cornbread. So you you take your cast iron skillet and you mix up your cornbread and you put it in there, you know, sizzling. Shh, you yeah, know, it makes yeah. the big sizzle when you put it in. And then bake off your cornbread. And then you're probably going to need two or three of those and let those, you know, sit to the side. That's why I used to make them the day before. And then, so you crumble that up in the bowl Mm. and then you add that onion and celery mixture with the water and the butter and everything, just dump that in, start mixing that up. And then you're going to do a, like a, just a giant amount of ground sage. I mean, just like a giant amount, like more than you think you could possibly need. That's how much. Uh, You don't like fresh sage in this. You don't want fresh sage. It's just not the way my mother did it. And so I do not. We're talking like like McCormick's little. Yep. Okay. Okay. Oh yeah. Ground oh, yeah. sage. All right, I'm with Ground you. Ground sage. I'm with you. And then um, then you season it to your taste. And it's just mostly salt and pepper. Yeah. My mother would use a little bit of black pepper and a little bit of white pepper. And she liked the difference. And I never really thought there was a big difference until the one year I didn't put in the white pepper. And then and I could tell. really taste a difference. Right. So you just mix all of that up together. And it's kind of soupy more than you think. And then you put it in your Pyrex dish and you bake it until it's firm. You don't want it to be, like you said, overcooked. And even if you do, no big deal. That's what gravy's for. I love it. I love it. I'll tell you what. The best part to me of the dressing is that afterwards, when you get ready to make your turkey sandwich, Uh because the whole point of Thanksgiving is so you can have that turkey sandwich, right? Next day. Not even the next day, like Uh, that evening. That evening. (laughs) That evening. Yeah. So you slice a piece of turkey and you slice a little wedge of the dressing and then you put that on your bread or even better if you've got some homemade yeast rolls and then you put the gravy on top and squish that together a little cranberry sauce on there with it oh well, yeah a little cranberry sauce gotta have that i gotta have a little spread of mayo too just because that's me maybe it's sacrilege yeah i don't know listen in virginia we put mayo on our turkey sandwiches with everything it's delicious i can't talk to you right now <laughs> I just can't talk to you right now who are you <laughs> i'm glad you clarified for us dressing and stuffing Marty, you are a treasure. We always love talking to you. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you for having me, Chef. It's been fun. Cornbread dressing is one way to go. But if you've got some challah, you might like this stuffing from New York-based private chef and sommelier, Yair Lynchner. These days, what I like to do is I like to make a sausage and chestnut stuffing. Uh, I'm a Jewish guy, and so I like to use challah for my stuffing. I like to let it sit out for a day, get a little stale so it can absorb some of of that juicy goodness. And uh, I like to start with going to my local butcher. Just my local guy who can make some fresh sausage. And the flavor barely matters. You know, you can have plain pork sausage if you want. You can go grab some chicken or turkey sausage if you're kind of keeping kosher. Frankly, you could grab something with little Szechuan peppercorns in it. It doesn't really matter. So I like to grab some local handmade sausages. Um, I like to use chestnuts uh, for a little cheat. Honestly, I get the pre-peeled ones because, you know, here we are. It, it is, you know, there's a lot of stuff to do on Thanksgiving. You don't always have a team of people to help you. Old shortcut lynchner. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Old shortcut. No, you're not kidding. Listen, hey, listen, you got to do what you got to do. You don't always have a team of prep That's books, right. You know? That's it right. is what That's it is right. at home. I, I don't have any kids yet to peel my, you know, peel my chestnuts <laughs> for me. So, you know, I, I like to grab a couple of, a couple of those sausages, crumble them up, get them rendered off in the pan. Um, I like to use a little bit of onion and garlic. So what I'll do is I'll render off that sausage, let the grease sit in the pan, right? Take it out with a slotted spoon or slotted spatula, throw in my onion and garlic, get those all glassy and delicious, pull all that stuff out. 
chop up my chestnuts. So now I've got my sausage, I've got my chestnuts, I've got my little bit of stale challah and some chicken stock. I like to use sage because Thanksgiving feels like it works, feels like it all fits. Um, so, you know, I do the sausage, the onions, the garlic, pull that out. And then what I do is I toast off all of those, uh, you know, hunks, maybe thumb-sized hunks, let's say, of challah. Uh, and once they're starting to get nice and toasty in the pan, I start slowly adding my chicken stock. Again, there's no real science to this. It's a little bit like risotto. You want to pour the stock in, let the, let the bread absorb it a little bit. Yep. Um, you know, you don't want to go crazy. You don't want to turn it into bread pudding, right? We just, we, we kind of want it to get juicy, fluffy, rehydrate that bread a little bit. Once you're at that point, I throw all my junk back in, right? All those chopped chestnuts, that rendered off sausage, the onions, the garlic, the sage, throw it all in, mix it up, make sure we're all nice and uh, not homogenized, but you know, well-mixed. And then what I like to do is I like to uh, mix in an egg, transfer it to a baking dish and just kind of let it get golden brown in the oven. Don't go crazy, maybe 350, something like that. Again, no real science here. This is let it get nice and golden brown. Where does the egg go there? I mix the egg right into all that, right into the mixture. So I'll, I'll toss all that stuff from the pan, either right, frankly, it could go into that pan. You don't want it to be super hot, right? You don't want to cook the egg immediately. But for me, the egg helps tighten up uh, the, the stuffing altogether. Um, and it allows you to kind of cut a piece out rather than rather than sloppy and on the plate. You can keep the plates pretty. Exactly. This sounds like a great recipe. We appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah, you're happy Thanksgiving to you. Happy Thanksgiving. It's not Thanksgiving dinner without a green bean casserole, right? Private chef Jeff Perazzi of New York shares what he calls his better than Alton Brown's green bean casserole. I developed this recipe that I called green bean casserole 2.0, because I thought it was taking my mom's green bean casserole and elevating it into this like gourmet green bean casserole. Lo and behold, Alton Brown wrote a book the same year that I wrote that recipe. And I read his recipe and he called it green bean casserole 2.0. I tried his and I realized mine was better. So I decided to call it better than Alton Brown's green bean casserole. <laughs> I love that title. If you look at this recipe as a home cook, it may look a hair daunting, but I promise you it's not. Chef, tell us about this recipe a little bit for us. I basically just took basic green bean casserole. So if we talk about what green bean casserole is, it's cream of mushroom soup, some button mushrooms that's mixed together with your blanched green beans, and it's covered with French's crispy onions, right? We're all familiar with that? Yeah, that's like the traditional like mom's green bean casserole for Thanksgiving, right? Exactly. It's delicious. So what I did is I, I removed the, the can of soup because who wants to just add a Campbell's can of soup? I wanted to elevate it. I wanted to make it a little bit more special. So what I did is I took wild mushrooms. I sauteed those out. I make a gluten-free roux, add it to that, add some chicken stock, cook it out. And it basically makes a quick wild mushroom, cream of mushroom sort of soup almost, if you will. A roux obviously would be a fat and a flour of some sort put together that's used for thickening. And here, Chef is using a roasted rice flour, right, to make your roux? Yeah, I, I, I used to use just rice flour. I've tried a few different gluten-free flours. I really like the roasted rice flour. It's a little less binding because it's been cooked a little bit, but it adds just a really beautiful flavor to the mushrooms. And that roux then, when mixed with a liquid of some sort, when it comes to a boil will actually thicken up the liquid, which kind of gives it that consistency you're looking for there in this particular recipe. And also, I see you said some wild mushrooms, but if we don't have access to those wild mushrooms, any store sells those shiitakes and yeah. any, any group of mushrooms you can get would be fine for this, right? Absolutely. I chose, those are my three favorite mushrooms for fall, chanterelles, royal trumpets, and king trumpets. 
But if you go to a grocery store, I think even like your local grocery store usually has a gourmet mix. Right. That gourmet mix is fine. And it's usually oysters and shiitakes and button and uh, sometimes portobello or something like that. Any of that's fine. Whatever mushroom is your favorite, you could add to it. So I like how you also add that hint of fall in here, that hint of the holidays with the grated nutmeg and a little allspice in the recipe. Like exactly what you said, it just calls to holidays, you know, those those flavors and those those smells and those spices. And in my opinion, those two spices, particularly with mushrooms, are very, very good and often overlooked. I just want to point out, too, with that roux, if you don't have rice flour, uh, Chef has included a recipe to make your homemade roasted rice flour in this recipe as well. But uh, you could also just make a regular roux using AP flour with this or as I say AP, but, you know, all purpose flour. Right, Jeff? Yeah, yeah. All-purpose flour would work as well. I like to keep things a little gluten-free, just especially at Thanksgiving. You know, we have a lot of guests come to my house and, you know, we have gluten-free, pescatarian, blah, 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 blah. And this is a short fire recipe for all those people. Like everybody can eat it. Everybody loves it. It reminds them of their childhood. Yeah. Sounds great. Now, listen, as, as a chef, I mean, I know how it is at my house on Thanksgiving. Everyone always says to me, oh, we don't want you to cook. We don't want you to cook. But I end up cooking a lot of the food. Uh, is that how it is in your household too? Actually, uh, my wife and my mother-in-law, who are almost always a great team uh, in the kitchen, uh, do a lot of the stuff on Thanksgiving together, and we usually have everybody pitch in. I'm usually responsible for turkeys, stuffing. Uh, My wife has actually taken over the green bean casserole in the last few years, so we like to break it down in a couple days. So she'll like blanch the beans two days ahead. She'll make the roux sauce ahead of time, and then we'll kind of put the whole thing together the day of Thanksgiving and bake it. This recipe you can do in pieces then, so you don't have to do it all at once. Absolutely. If you want to make the roux and put it in a container in the fridge for like with the mushrooms, make the whole mushroom sauce, make that sauce ahead of time. It'll last a week. Uh, Blanch your beans the day before. Fry your shallots, you know, three or four days before. As long as you keep them in an airtight container and not in the refrigerator, they'll stay crispy, especially if you follow the recipe. It's a great way to do it. From the cold oil up, people don't often do that, but it really pushes out all that moisture and keeps them very crispy. Yeah, so you're talking about when you go to fry these shallots, start with cold oil and then kind of bring them up to temperature, right? Yeah, I put the shallots and everything in the cold oil and you turn it up and you let it and you just got to keep an eye on it. Uh, It'll start sizzling and then it goes. But when it's done, it's done quick. So at that last second, it's one of those things that you kind of have to keep an eye on, kind of be next to it and look over at it every couple seconds and give it a stir. But when they're done, they're they're amazing. And then that shallot oil we use all year long. It's delicious. And another chef's tip here for everybody. I would uh, make a little extra of this sauce because I have a feeling it's delicious over top leftover turkey. Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) Chef Jeff Parazzi, thank you so much. We appreciate you and have a great Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. We have time for one more recipe before the break. It's from a local cook this time. Tony Olive is pit master with Backdraft Barbecue, a competitive barbecue team. He's also a fire marshal at Longridge Fire Company in Stamford, Connecticut. Uh, my recipe is for uh, smoked acorn squash with a bourbon maple brown sugar sauce. Love acorn squash. Just wanted to, you know, kick it up a notch. Yeah, and this recipe, you've got it happening on a smoker where you start at a low heat, 225 for 30 minutes, and then you kick it up. So is that low heat kind of to get that smoke into it, and then the high heat kind of finishes it? Uh, yeah, the low heat gets it, uh, so it, it softens it up and cooks it slow. If you cook it too fast, it'll uh, harden up and get a skin on it. So you want to get it nice and slow, get the smoke permeates into it and all the ingredients just soak into it nicely. And then you kick it up to the high heat and that kind of like puts a finishing, um, almost like a, a sear on it. Yeah, it sounds great. And with that sugar in the recipe too, it probably gets that nice crunch on the outside. 
Yeah, definitely. And I've uh, I've used variable maple syrup, but um, I found this bourbon maple syrup that just is amazing. And with the butter and brown sugar and nutmeg, and it just it's all those fall flavors, and just it comes out amazing. Imagine that a barbecue guy who wants to use bourbon. <laughs> bourbon and bacon baby talk about how when you're smoking a vegetable you have to have some sort of fat on it or the smoke just won't take yeah with anything um even uh, meats you'll see guys spritzing them and everything when they're wet it absorbs the smoke so having a little bit of olive oil on it will make the smoke attract to the vegetable itself so if it's dry it's not going to attract it to the vegetable have you made this dish at home? Like this, it's a staple in your Thanksgiving meal. Uh, yeah, we we do it um, Thanksgiving. We do it all year round, and I've done it for the firehouse, and uh, everyone loves it. Do you cook a lot in the firehouse? Uh, yeah, whenever um, I work my shift, uh, I have a small smoker that's portable. I bring that to work, and we uh, smoke a um, you know pork loin, chicken, ribs, whatever you know we feel like that day. Pork belly. <laughs> You're like the best guy at the firehouse. They're not worried about your firefighting skills. He's bringing his smoker. That's all that matters. Tony's coming. Yeah, they eat good. <laughs> Let me ask you about this recipe one more time. Because let's say I'm a, you know, I'm a home cook. I don't have a smoker. Yep. Is there a way that I can do this at home? Maybe on my grill or in the oven somehow. Yeah, you can. Um, you can do it on your grill. Some grills have like a little smoker box, or you can buy a little smoker box and get the, the little wood chips, or you can even make one with, you make a little pocket with um, aluminum foil. You poke some holes in it. Key thing with wood chips is you got to soak them because they're so small they'll burn. So you throw them on the grill and once they get smart, start smoking, you can put them on with your squash or whatever food you're doing. In the house, you don't really want to do that too much in the oven because of you'll set up your smoke detectors and everything else and you got the fire department coming to your house. Hey, they're going to have you come to the house. Maybe you just bring it with you. That'd be easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You can always, in the if you don't have a smoker or a grill outside, you can always uh, get a little bit of liquid smoke and, and cheat that way and add the smoke flavor in there. That's cheating, but hey, if it works, it works. And when you do that grill, do it on indirect heat. You want to? I would turn one side of the grill on, keep the other side off. Take that little foil packet that Tony's talking about. You make a little envelope out of tin foil. Put your chips in there. I like to soak mine in beer before I use them, and then uh, poke some holes in it, and it'll put that foil packet right on top of the heat and put your squash where the heat is not and let it ride. Does that sound about right, Tony? Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah, with the uh, chips, you can play around different flavors of chips. You can soak them in, like I said, beer, wine, water, whatever, whatever you want. You know, possibilities are really endless. That was Tony Olive from Backdraft Barbecue. Thanks so much to all the chefs who shared their go-to Thanksgiving sides with us. Visit our show page at ctpublic.org slash seasoned for links to some of the recipes our guests talked about. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break. Whether the cranberry sauce on your table is homemade or the kind that plops out of a can, it all starts at a cranberry bog. When we come back, you'll meet the farmer of Connecticut's only cranberry bog. He's a winemaker too, so he'll recommend a bottle that puts his farm's berries to excellent use. It's fitting, it's got a nice tart flavor to it, gentle characteristics of uh, cranberries, not, not too strong. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're talking about favorite Thanksgiving side dishes this week. When brainstorming ideas for the show, we realized we really didn't know much about cranberries as a crop before they become the tart sauce we love so much with turkey. Our next guest is Keith Bishop. Keith is a fifth-generation co-owner of Bishop's Orchards in Guilford. He's also a winemaker and the farmer behind Killingworth Cranberries, the only cranberry farm and bog in the state. He Zoomed with us recently from an office in Bishop's Orchards. Keith Bishop, welcome to Seasoned. It's great to have you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So how are cranberries born? Where do they Where do <laughs> they come from? We don't just go to the grocery store and they magically emerge. A gelatinous thing doesn't emerge right from, from a can. It actually comes from something. The cranberry bog that I operate uh, is a uh, century-old bog in Killingworth that was owned by the Everts family. They actually, uh, Cyrus Everts in... Um, 1898, I believe it was, bought the property and started the bog and did all the uh, necessary production land management requirements to have it into cultivation. You know, what they operated was older varieties and cranberries are perennial plants, so they maintain years after years. So the plants they planted in 1911 were still in production of sorts when I purchased the bog in uh, 2012. And I did a complete renovation of that bog. Uh, there's now 2.5 acres that are in production. It's a new hybrid variety from Rutgers plant breeding program called Scarlet Knights. And for any uh, Rutgers uh, people in the audience, and Scarlet Knights obviously has a, a ring to it, <laughs> why they named it. Um, there's a number of new varieties of cranberries that have been developed over the past uh, couple of decades that are replacing the old varieties that had less productivity, um, were not as colorful, um, had less flavor potential, and other attributes in this modern day of uh, genetics and plant science breeding work. It takes multiple years for any perennial plant to come into its full production. I planted in 2016. Uh, this is actually my third um, official harvest year this year. And I still have a couple more years to go to get to a full production potential on the plants based upon the output algorithms and measurements that Rutgers put forward. Can you tell us what does the word, the term bog mean when talking about cranberry farming? And tell us a little bit about the work. Like, for instance, cranberries grow on vines and in sandy soil. I don't think people know that. Can you just talk a little bit about that and tell us what is a bog? Sure. Well, a bog is a misnomer in the sense that it's called cranberry bog, which uh, the area does get flooded seasonally in order to do the cultural practices. And generally, the only time a bog is actually flooded or cranberry plants are actually flooded is either for the harvest period uh, during sometime during uh, generally October uh, to float the berries off of the vines and to corral them and bring them in if it's a wet harvest, which is 98% uh, of the production in the United States and the world is wet harvest. Uh, dry harvest is what I do, and that's only a couple percent of the total production, uh, which means I've got a mini combine with fingers that then slice uh, 
through the vines and sort of comb the vines like a comb and the berries get plucked off. Oh, wow. Go up a little conveyor into a burlap sack. And then the burlap sack is transported to sorters that then sort the uh, wheat from the chaff, so to speak, of the vines and versus the berries. Uh, the bog is dry most all the time of the year. They like sandy soil. They like moisture, about an inch of rain a week is the moisture level, but they don't like to have wet feet and can't have wet feet during the grow growing season at all. The bogs are designed in these modern days to have water control systems that help to flood it and control the water, but also to make sure that there is not too much water when you don't need it. So it can naturally drain out through the system of waterways and brooks and so forth that is both natural as well as man-assisted. So it's not like those commercials you see on TV for that juice where they're standing in like <laughs> waist-deep water wearing waders with berries floating everywhere. Well, that's what 98% of the cranberry uh, production is that way. So that that is accurate. But my production method is dry and is not that at all. And I did do an emergency wet harvest in 2018 as we had seven inches of rain in uh, late September, and that disrupted my whole plans. That rainfall event then uh, flooded the bog naturally, and I had no uh, control over getting rid of the water any more than the natural way of doing it. So we had to resort to a wet harvest uh, for that particular year, and the quality of our berries was uh, pretty poor that year, actually. What with all the rain we've had this year, and we've heard this from other farmers as well, how has this year's climate altered what you're doing with your cranberries? I was forced to work with what um, God gave us. <laughs> so um, this year, um, my harvest of cranberries was down um, about 60% of what it was last year, and I should have had about 150% of what it would have been if it otherwise um, had uh, typical conditions. Cranberries are pollinated and have their blossoms during the month of June. Uh, the very beginning of July, we had a tropical storm event, and the bog actually was flooded for the first time during the growing season for 40 hours um, during the first, uh, first early of July. Uh, that then put stress on the plants, uh, knocked off um, some blossoms from developing into berries, so that reduced the crop at that point in time. And then uh, again, we had the tropical storm that came in early September, and that event flooded 18 inches of water over top of my cranberry plants that had uh, full berries on them growing. That then uh, made berries float that were loose and susceptible to be taken off uh, prematurely. And that then decreased the yield again. So, but that's part of mother nature and dealing with weather conditions that lots of farmers have. Part of being a farmer, right? Right. So yeah. I'm thankful that so far the quality of the crop that I do have this year has held up. Are the berries ready to go right when you pick them? Like where they get picked and they pulled off that comb yep. situation you have? Are they ready to be eaten immediately or do they need to sit a little bit? Oh, they don't need to sit at all. So once they come off of the vines, uh, we sort out the vines from the berries themselves. They go into 300-pound uh, bins. Then they're put into cold storage. And then when we're ready to sort and package them, then they go through a uh, sorting machine to uh, take out any soft berries, those that are malformed or have any defects in them. And that is a electronic sorter that I've got that's very high price for my particular size operation, but only the best. You can imagine rolling little berries and trying to get imperfect uh, little berries picked <laughs> out by hand. Um, it's a monumental task. So, so uh, personally, 
You're also famous for making the fruit wine served at Bishop's <laughs> Orchard Winery. So we have to ask, what's the best wine to pair with turkey? Oh, um, absolutely. The best wine that we make that uh, goes with turkey is called uh, Amazing Grace. And that is a wine that we had well before we started actually growing cranberries. That is an apple cranberry wine. It's fitting. It's got a nice tart flavor to it. Uh, gentle characteristics of uh, cranberries, not, not too strong. That uh, pairs very nicely with any poultry products and especially turkey at the turkey season. That was farmer Keith Bishop of Bishop's Orchards and Killingworth Cranberries. You can see pictures of Keith operating his cranberry harvester at his website, killingworthcranberries.com. Before we go, we're pretty thankful that we have the opportunity to shine a light on organizations where feeding people is central to the mission. Fresh New London is a community garden focused on empowering youth, connecting community, and growing food. Chef Plum talked with food justice educator Chloe Murphy about the work she and the team do there. Chloe, thanks for joining us here on Seasoned. Thank you for having me. It says on the website that Fresh New London is a small but mighty food justice organization. What is Fresh New London, and can you summarize the mighty work you do to feed the people in the community? When we talk about food justice, that means that our work is really operating with the ultimate goal of systemic change, right? So there are a lot of band-aid solutions that exist within the food movement and within the food system, by which I mean... Uh, solutions that are temporary and don't really change the conditions of people's lives that make it difficult or challenging or just affect the way that we eat, right? So when we're talking about systemic change, we want to change the ability for people to eat in the ways that they want and really have control over their nutrition. I definitely think that we're mighty. Just taking a walk around New London, you'll definitely see our presence and feel our presence. Um, And that makes me proud What's even more important is if you talk to our neighbors and the community members, you can see like tangible change that has happened within the the amount of time that we've been operating here. An example that I always bring up is whenever we meet with young people or typically anytime we are chatting with a community group, we might start by asking a question. And that question we ask is, okay, think about where you live in New London. And think about going on a 10-minute walk. Within that 10-minute walk, how many places can you get hot Cheetos? And within that same 10-minute walk, how many places can you get a fresh tomato? Yeah. For a long time, a lot of people would say, well, I can get hot Cheetos from four, five, six, seven places. But a fresh tomato, maybe one place, maybe not any places at all. But within the past few years, a lot of our young people that I speak to are saying, well, actually, I can get a fresh tomato in like two or three places because of there are some snack beds by where I live. And those are snack beds that we installed intentionally along walking paths around New London. Um, so with the with the purpose of um, folks being able to walk past and just pick something quick for them to eat or something quick for them to take home and cook with. I love that. That is fantastic. Can you tell us a little bit about the philosophy behind Fresh New London? Through relationship building, you know, you get to know people, you get to know what they need. And and that's how we decide everything. That's how we decide where we're going to grow food, what foods we are going to grow, um, whether what type of culturally relevant crops we're going to grow, because that is a big focus of ours is making sure that we grow culturally relevant crops so that folks in the community can eat the foods that are important to them and their families and their traditions. Which isn't always easy here in the in, in the East Coast because no. some things we can't grow as easy as you can grow someplace down south or someplace in you know southwestern the country. 
Yes, a lot of our neighbors are from the Caribbean, right? And so so we're used to um, like tropical foods, right. which we can't grow here. Right. Um, but there are, you know, uh, other staple ingredients like certain peppers that we can grow in, in different seasons and herbs that we can grow. That's really important to us too. How can people who are just learning about Fresh help you do the work that you do? Yeah, so people always want to get involved with Fresh and it's so fun. <laughs> um, so traditionally we have our big Saturday work days and so we're always out in the gardens, um, typically either at Mercer, our Mercer Street location, which is across from Jennings Elementary School, or our Cottage Street location, which is new to us. So we're out there Saturday mornings um, doing farm work or we might be door knocking, we might be doing some construction work. And typically that's the easiest way for people to get involved is to just show up and, and meet us. But there are other ways too. We collect recipes from the community. People can submit their written recipes. A lot of our community members come from cultures that utilize um, oral history. So we also have options to just like verbally tell us your, your favorite recipes. That's a community archive that we're building right now. It's just collecting recipes that are important to people, important to their cultures. Um, so that's one way to get involved. Very cool. Do you do any growing in the wintertime? Is there any like winter farming or do you have greenhouse or hoop house or something to grow in? We do have a greenhouse at our Mercer location and um, we are able to continue growing through the cold season. Actually, our youth program yesterday just seeded out the greenhouse with some cold season crops. So they chose spinach, beets, radishes, onions. Um, parsley that they wanted to grow in there. So they'll be able to harvest that in a Great couple of weeks and see see the fruit of their labor. Um, one of our big aspirations and visions is to have a high-tech greenhouse at our cottage location. We're hoping to get some grant money to be able to do that. Maybe we can have the capacity to grow some of those more tropical crops that are really important to our cultures, like avocados or mangoes. Wow. Maybe not, though. I'm not sure. <laughs> You're definitely uh, big high hopes there. Chloe, thanks so much for joining us on Season and talking with us about the work Fresh New London does to feed its community. We really do appreciate you. Thank you all. Thank you for having me. That was Chloe Murphy, food justice educator at Fresh New London. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. I'm thankful that Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyen-Aiken and Katie Tularski. Our interns are Abu Levine and Dylan Reyes. Thanks for listening, everybody. All of us on Seasoned wish you a very happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. See you next week. Thank you.